Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. This conversation I was so much looking forward to and believe you me, it did not disappoint. My next guests are none other than Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying. Now, for those of you that don't know who they are, they're evolutionary biologists who have been invited to address the US Congress, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Education as well. And they have spoken before audiences across the globe. They both earn PhDs in biology from the University of Michigan, where their research on evolution and adaptation earn awards for its uh, quality and innovation. They have been visiting fellows at Princeton University and before that they were professors at Evergreen State College for 15 years. They resigned from Evergreen in the wake of the 2017 campus riots that focused in part on their opposition to a day of racial segregation and other college equity proposals. Uh, you can go and see the videos on YouTube. They're honestly crazy to, to look at. Uh, but they also co-host a weekly live stream on the Dark Horse podcast, which is a great deep dive. And I love listening to some of the conversations they do have on there. But honestly, this was a conversation that, uh, like I was saying in, in the very beginning, I was very much looking forward to because of the subject matters that we do tackle and the kind of questions that I do ask in this conversation. Just to give you a, a little bit of an insight in, into what's to come, I asked them about where this massive divide that we are seeing all over the world now, where is that coming from? And is there still ultimately hope? Can we fix this massive divide that is happening? Uh, and what do we do about it? Like with the, the limited voices that we do have in cancel culture, you name it, what can we do? And then another area that we do dive into is their 
new book at the moment, which is a New York Times bestselling book and very well deserved. It is called A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. It is a bold, provocative history of our species and how to find the roots of civilization's success and failure in our evolutionary biology. We are living through the most prosperous age in all of human history, yet people are more listless, divided, and miserable than ever before. Wealth and comfort are unparalleled, and yet our political landscape grows ever more toxic, and rates of suicide, loneliness, and chronic illnesses continue to skyrocket. Why is that the case? And how do we explain the gap between these two truths, which we do get into during this conversation? What's more, how can, what can we do to close it all? For evolutionary biologists and my guests today, Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, the cause of our woes is clear. The modern world is out of sync with our ancient brains and bodies. We evolved to live in clans, but today most people don't even know their neighbor's name. I mean, I remember growing up, we used to play with our neighbors uh, all the time, like the kids in the streets, but gone are those days now, you hardly ever see it. Survival in our earliest uh, societies depended on leveraging the advantage advantages of our sex differences, but today even the concept of biological sex is increasingly dismissed as being offensive. Uh, the cognitive uh, dissonance spawned by trying to live in a society were not built for for is actually killing us. In their new book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, they both uh, cut through the political fraught uh, discourse surrounded issues, surrounding issues, sorry, like sex, gender, diet, parenting, sleep, education, and more to outline a science-based worldview that will empower you to live a better, wiser life. They distill more than over 20 years of research and firsthand accounts from the most biodiverse ecosystems on earth into straightforward principles and guidance for confronting our culture of hyper novelty. My goodness, like that says it all, really. I don't want to talk too much, but I will say that if you do get something from this, and it is quite a conversation for everyone, that is whether you agree with these professors or not, this is a conversation that needs to be had and I wanted to have it on the story box because like I say, every story matters, including this one right now. Uh, so it gives us a better understanding of what's going on, how do we fix it or can we fix it uh, and so much more. Please share it around to your friends and your family. Don't forget before you go to subscribe and leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as well. All the links for everything by supporting Heather and Brett. You can uh, click the links below to get a copy of their book, subscribe to their show or watch it wherever you wherever you like. But all right, that's enough from me. I've, I've spoken too much, but let's journey into this story box, my friends, and uh, listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the stories of none other than Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's Thanks. great to have you both here. Now, uh, you both are evolutionary biologists, as I mentioned in the introduction that I butchered and I apologize for that. <laughs> um, but I'm very, very excited to have you both on the show and speak to you more about your book uh, more in depth. But before we do that, uh, I do have a question that I love asking all my guests at the very start, which is what does success look like for you both? 
Um, yeah, let's put it this way. Um, happiness is something that one ought not be overly focused on because we are wired in such a way that you can achieve happiness, but you can't stabilize it. So something closer to uh, a satisfying life, a fulfilling life is probably the thing to shoot for. And I would say you're probably most fulfilled when you are occupied with things that have actual meaning involved. Mm. Yeah. And, and how, you know, what it is that any of us individually make meaning from is going to be variable, but um, there are some things that are close to universals. And, you know, th this is actually some of the themes of our book, but, you know, family, family for us, we are lucky to live, uh, you know, through, through almost, you know, closing in on two years of lockdowns almost, uh, with, you know, two lovely teenage boys. And, uh, uh, we still not only all love each other, but we all still like each other. And that's, that's <laughs> remarkable. Um, and then, you know, the, this book of ours that we've been thinking about talking about for over a decade wow. to have it finally be out in the world and to have it be doing as well as it's doing. And to, you know, not just to be looking at, okay, people are buying it, but to be hearing from people what they're thinking of what they're seeing in it. That mm -hmm. is extraordinarily gratifying. Yeah. I love those answers. Before we dive into more of your book in just a moment, I wanted to ask you for someone as like uneducated as myself, <laughs> what is uh, a evolutionary biologist or what does an evolutionary biologist do more specifically? Well, there are a couple kinds of evolutionary biologists. I would say it makes sense to divide them. Uh, there are those who study the relationships between organisms to figure out what's most closely related to what. And there are those who study the process by which evolution takes place. Usually that's adaptive evolution, and we are primarily adaptive evolutionary biologists. Um, we have studied phylogenetic systematics, which is the study of relationships, but we are most interested in why creatures are the way they are and very especially why human beings are the way they are. Yeah. So when, when people think of evolution, if they haven't thought about it much before and they, you know, what was Darwin on about with the origin of species and such, that's that first kind of evolutionary biologist. That's the deep history. That is, you know, our, are whales cows? You know, what is the relationship between them? That sort of question. Mm -hmm. And you know, we do spend a chapter in the book talking about our deep history as humans. You know, what's some of the forms that we've taken in the past have looked like and how that uh, impinges on our current forms. But uh, for us, the more intriguing questions have to do with exactly as Brett said, the so-called microevolutionary processes of individual level changes uh, that affect populations. Yeah. Did you both always want to be evolutionary biologists growing up? Um, a love of biology goes back a long way for me. I don't think I knew I wanted to be an evolutionary biologist until I got to college and realized that there was a simple way of understanding creatures that just stripped away the complexity that one would encounter using almost any other uh, mode of thinking. So mm -hmm. it was a, it was a simplifying move. And once you see how simplifying it is, uh, one becomes, I guess, addicted to the process of looking into puzzles and figuring out what their essence is. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, I went through a number of phases. I thought I might be a pianist, uh, and then a mathematician and then a science fiction writer is what I thought really when I started college and Brett and I actually met each other. We were friends in high school 
And at the point that we started dating uh, halfway through college, I had, you know, I had also been dabbling in various kinds of spiritual and other traditions, trying to figure out how to make meaning. I, I had, I had um, been lucky enough to be on a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, um, the, the famous Buddhist and such. Um, but as much as there was meaning to be had there, none of it quite, quite was as fully explanatory as I was looking for. So Brett offered me a book by Richard Dawkins uh, a couple of years into college and said, I think you might find some things here uh, that will uh, help you make sense of the world. And, and so I did. And so we did. And so we've been on this, this journey together ever since. Wow. So I want to dive into, you mentioned you, you study where humans come from, the, the biology side of things, the evolution of that. Where do, if in your research, where do humans actually come from? And how do we give humans meaning or where does meaning really come from as well? Um, this is a question that we're supposed to say the answer is very complex or <laughs> there are many things that contribute to it, but really uh, overarchingly, it's one thing. Yeah. Um, humans are special because of language and everything that flows from it. Maybe most importantly, the ability to pool our consciousness. Yeah. There is no other animal that can transmit an abstract idea over open air and lodge it into another mind. As humans, we do this so regularly, we don't even notice that we're doing it. But what it allows is, for one thing, it allows our species to bootstrap new software as we encounter new uh, ecological puzzles. Um, it also allows for a cumulative upgrade process where humans are far more capable now than they were 500, 1,000, 10,000 years ago by virtue of all of the discoveries of various generations that have been put into our collective software. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Do you want to expand on that, Heather, or is, has Brett really answered everything? <laughs> well, you know, it was, you asked two gigantic questions and I think it's a level Brett cut the Gordian knot by saying we're, we're supposed to answer with a lot of complexity. And I think I, I would have answered with more complexity if I had started, but I think he did an excellent job of cutting through, cutting through that. Well, thank you. Yeah. You did, you did uh, very, very well. <laughs> um, I wanted to dive into the area of meaning and, and why people or some people today, in fact, feel like they don't have meaning, they don't have purpose. Why do you think that is the case in today's day and age? Well, there, there are really two reasons. One has to do with hypernovelty, which is a major theme of our book. Yeah. Hypernovelty being the state at which the rate of change is so fast that we can't evolutionarily keep up with it. Um, that's one reason. And the other reason has to do with something more local in time, which is that by and large, people live in the strange circumstance of selling their labor to someone else in exchange for currency, which they can then spend in whatever small fraction of their time remains for them. That's mm -hmm. not a normal circumstance. And all of it has disconnected us from the very natural process of meaning making that would have existed for any ancestor that lived in an environment for which it was well adapted. Yeah, the, the connections between us that we are 
better able to make than any other organisms, although there are many other organisms out there who have some similarities to us that are important, that they're social and they're long-lived and they have childhoods and they have overlap of generations. Animals like wolves and elephants and other apes and dolphins and parrots and crows and, and more, but the, you know, those are some of the, the big name players that people will be familiar with. We do some of the same kinds of things that they do, but even more so. So we, you know, we make meaning through connection and that connection then allows us to create, to discover, to explore, to heal, to lead, uh, to communicate there, you know, any number of words um, that individuals may find as their particular passion and, and skill that they want to pursue in life. But too often now modernity with its hyper novelty and this rate of change that we have ourselves created, but that we are ourselves finding ourselves unable to keep up with, we, we find ourselves stuck on the treadmill, stuck on it. And it's more than a hedonic treadmill now, right? It's, it's this hyper novelty treadmill, just trying to keep up with how do I even know you know, how to update the apps on my phone, right? Like, how do I get customer service to tell me what I want it to tell me so I can get off the phone, yeah. right? How do I do things that are fully embodied in the universe, which do give me feedback, which do provide more meaning? We're stuck in these in these spaces now that prevent us from discovering what our passions and skills might be. Yeah. So why do you think that we, I guess, we have this accelerated rate of change that we produce ourselves and the advent of technology. We just keep going for it. So why do you think we, we continue this rate of change if we know it's kind of in a way disconnecting us from other people? Is it like this new exciting thing every single time they bring out a new new app or new technology. Hey, like Instagram, for example, this is going to connect the world, but yet it's somehow disconnecting us from the ability to really find meaning and purpose and, and be with one another. Why do you think that is really the case? It, it's an addiction problem and yep. it's built into our economic structures now. So um, in the interest of being efficient here, I'll say, all creatures are addicted to the equivalent of growth. They look for untapped opportunities. And we have that on steroids, as it were. As human beings, we have more tools at our disposal to solve problems that other creatures simply couldn't. But having done that successfully many times, we have just simply uh, reached a rate of update that has now crossed a threshold where we can't keep up. That wouldn't have been true 500 years ago, but it has now. And the, the point is we just simply didn't have a mechanism for looking out for that threshold and then slowing as we approached it. We blew right through it. Yeah. yeah. And not only is it an addiction problem, but we are used to recognizing addictions insofar as we can from sources external to ourselves. Right. And when we're talking about substances, a substance addiction, certainly it's exogenous. You know, it's something that we are taking into ourselves, either of our own free will early on in an addiction or later on, not of our own free will, but it's something that we are taking in. And to the degree that, for instance, you know, the latest thing on Instagram or, you know, whatever social media it is, um, is addicting us. It's addicting us with our own endogenous drugs. It's addicting yeah. us with the circuitry and the hormones and neurotransmitters that we already have on board. And so it's, 
harder to recognize that there's a moment when you're like, oh, wait, I can see myself taking this thing into my body and I know I shouldn't. There's no such moment. You just, you're there fall, having fallen into the abyss uh, without having made any conscious choice, even in the beginning, often that knowing that that is what you were doing. Yeah. Are we able to fix this rate of change at all? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the irony in the book is that we are both the most capable of adapting to change and also the creature which created a rate of change that we can't keep up with. The key is to recognize that this is not serving us in the long term and to, to start becoming very discerning about what sorts of change we actually wish to embrace and which sorts of change we should reject. Yeah. Um, it's readily possible. And the, you know, the last, <coughs> excuse me, the last chapter of the book uh, describes a state that we call the fourth frontier in which we effectively rein in this process and provide human beings the sensation of growth without us having to constantly find new things. Yeah. And it is, it is an attainable state, but it's not going to happen by accident. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, you know, it's, this is not backwards looking. This is not a call to conservatism or tradition, although there is value in tradition and we speak to the value of things like ritual yeah. uh, in the book as well. It is a, a, an ask, you know, a deep ask to just be careful about embracing all that is new because yeah. it is a really naive perspective. And actually anyone, if, if posed this question, will recognize that the idea that everything that is new is good can't be true, yeah. right? So um, the fact that we are, you know, we are most of us addicted to our phones, for instance, suggests that there's a problem that we all, we all fell prey to this. Mm. And the fact that we all fell prey to it doesn't mean that it was a good thing. And it looks like it was a bad thing, but it was effective. So how yeah. can we recognize the thing that was effective about that and work to make those same aspects of our, of our, of our deep evolutionary history work towards goals that are better suited to us being productive and joyous humans. Brad mentioned the ability to adapt. And I'm curious about, is that ability to adapt because uh, if you look at the rate of change and the way we have had to adapt, it's kind of most of it has been forced on us. And that's kind of created a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. So do you think that some people are better at adapting than others are? Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it really can't be any other way. And even when we talk about human beings and their capacity to adapt, Within a lineage, within a tribe, there would be a division of labor surrounding the adaptive process. And, you know, we, we describe this a little bit in the book. We juxtapose what we call the sacred against the shamanistic. The shamanistic is, is the part of the cultural engine that is built to adapt to novelty. And the sacred is that fraction of our uh structure that is resistant to change because the things contained there are very sensitive they can be easily destroyed so yes of course we differ in our uh, capacity for and our tendency towards interacting with change and that's and as our, it should be and our, and our and our interest in it too which i think is um in the subtext anyway of what you were saying you know we talk about as you say the shamanistic versus the sacred which we analogize to you know, the heterodoxy to the orthodoxy. And 
any functioning system needs both, right? Like unless, unless you're talking about a system that is brand new on this planet to human understanding, there is some history. And at least some of that history has been functional. And so figuring out what parts of that history that are functional need to be brought forward into the future, that's the orthodoxy you're looking for. That's the equivalent of the sacred. And how do we make how do we make change so that we can move what did work in the past with, with new innovations into a future that we have not yet experienced and may not have yet begun to fully imagine? Well, that's the heterodox. That's the shamanistic. And there, it's high error. It's going to be a little bit chaotic. There's no guarantee of success. That's part of the point, right? Yeah. And uh, there's just no there's no doing an end run around that. You can't reduce risk to zero. Um, there will be failures. There will be missteps. Yeah. So society in a, as a whole is not totally doomed. <laughs> well, the well uh, I mean, I realize you're <laughs> joking, but I think as, the the fair answer to your question is as far as we know, we are not yet doomed. Yeah. We are headed in a bad direction. And we, our species has traditionally looked at circumstances when it had to change and confronted that change deliberately. Um, we are in some sense in a battle over whether or not to change or to stay the course. And if we stay the course, we're in very serious trouble. Yeah. So um, it's, as far as we know, it's not too late but it's very late. Yeah. Is that our decision though? Is that our decision to like for each person that is listening at the moment, or is it more our leaders in positions of power? Let's hope not. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know about these leaders you talk about. I haven't seen any in quite some <laughs> me, time. Me either, far out. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you. No, uh, it, it is ours. Um, there's a, a Hopi saying, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And I believe it encapsulates the message of the moment. Yes, if you are having the sense that the uh, the leaders are um, playing a part and not actually leading or that the direction that they are leading us is in their interest and not ours, this is the moment at which we have to confront that because we cannot afford to go where they are taking us. Yeah. Resistance cannot be futile. Resistance cannot be useless. It is necessary. How do we push back on this that's moving forward at a rapid rate? How can we, as people, I'm not trying to say start riots and all that sort of stuff, but how do we push back on this idea that is going so far towards just, I don't know, what's the best word to use here? Like absolute destruction <laughs> how do we push back well um first thing to do is the part that, uh, of this process that's absolutely natural and ancient which is to recognize that when when the ancestral wisdom is not working relative to the circumstance that we find ourselves in we have to come to collective consciousness yeah. now our so-called leaders have us pitted against each other, making that process much less likely because we tend to view people who have a different perspective as if they are simply wrong and obviously so. And it's time to stop playing that game, to realize that you know we, we are all in a process of waking up to where we are and um, keeping us divided is part of how our leaders continue to lead in the direction that they wish to go. 
not being divided, recognizing that when, when we are studied with respect to what world we actually want, I'm certain that this is true in Australia as it is in the US, there's overwhelming agreement on what a good society should look like. Yeah. Um, even issues on which we are famously so divided that we cannot come together turn out to be places in which there is overwhelming agreement. So we need to stop playing our roles, wake up, talk to each other, and we need to notice the structural elements that are designed to keep us from hearing others, right? There's a reason that certain voices are removed from YouTube. We are told that is for our safety. That is, of course, nonsense. That is because there are certain things that they don't want us to hear. And when you are when you run into something that you're not supposed to hear, seek it out, right? right. If somebody's burning a book, read it, right? Mm. That's the way you're going to find out what's really going on. Yeah. yeah. Ignore ignore the tribal boundaries as much as you can and, uh, you know, step outside of both who you think you want to be talking to and feel comfortable talking to, and even who you, you know, desire to hear from, you know, listen to the voices across all of the, all of the realms. And, you know, even though you may, you know, you may well find some subcultures that you wish didn't exist and that you don't want to listen to, and you shouldn't force yourself to continue listening to, to, to subcultures that you actively find, uh, you know, dangerous or distasteful. But knowing what is actually out there will actually remind you. And you know, in a in a different era, and hopefully an era to return very very soon, traveling outside of your home culture does this as well. Yes. Actually engaging with people who don't look or sound like you and don't have the same developmental history and weren't raised with the kinds of privileges you had, presumably if you were traveling internationally, that's because you have some privilege. Mm -hmm. um, you begin to see how similar we are and how much we all share values and that the people who would want us divided actually represent a tiny, tiny percentage of humanity. Yeah. I felt like here in Australia, and I don't know what it's like for the States because uh, you're actually there, but I feel like people are more than happy to continue to trust in the so-called leaders because they feel like there's no other option. They feel like it's just, we, we must do this and it's going to get better. I think they always have that particular line of hope, but I saw it, I was in university studying to become a teacher, believe it or not, in 2019 um, and or at the end of 2019 and early 2020. And I kind of was in these lectures and the questions they were pitting uh, in the lecture was just causing more division. And you saw that one person that would stand up and have a different opinion to someone else. You'd have the vast majority of those people attack that one person that had the right to that opinion and they had that experience. And the lecturer did absolutely nothing. He actually encouraged the the majority to go against the minority and i've heard that play out here in in australia with these so-called leaders they've said we are in the minority if you're not vaccinated you're in the, the minority if you don't follow along and i'm thinking how is that right how is that fair for every single human being on the face of this earth to live harmoniously you're just creating more and more division and i'm like why are you creating more and more, more division? You're doing it in the education system. You're, you're giving it to kids. It's causing more problems than actual good. And I guess my question to you is how do we, we, we I, I think we've got to fix the education system, but can we fix the education system at all? 
Yeah. Uh, the first thing is the division is a feature, not a bug, mm. right? Um, there's a reason in the U.S. that we uh, have every election come down to a photo finish, right? And it's because if we were allowed to find our natural allegiances, we would be a, uh, a force to be reckoned with. So recognizing that this is this is part of some sort of game and that it's a game not built around our interests is key. As for fixing education, unfortunately, we have left this fester for a very long time. Yeah. Heather and I ran into postmodernism in the 90s when we were college students. And um, part of the story of what happened in 2017 and onward was that that thing had gone through a couple of generations and had become mature and ready to fight. And had we dealt with it when it was um, equally wrong, but small, we wouldn't have had it spill over into society and upend everything. Yeah. So yes, it, it has to be fixed, but that's not going to be a quick process. Um, I think people will gravitate to those who say it is that they have a solution, but really the solution was to listen early and take it seriously and not wait so long. Yeah. It's, it's also true that, um, so we're talking with regard to the sort of the postmodern takeover of the modern academy is is increasingly a K through 12 problem as well, because the schools of education have been taken over as well. And so at least in the US, this is where the teachers are pulled from for public schools. Um, but it's, it, at least until very recently, this was more of a problem for higher ed, which of course is huge. What stays on, what happens on campus does not stay on campus. And we know this from what we see in the media and the law and you know everywhere else at this point. That said, there's an additional problem with you know, the history of compulsory schooling at the, at the elementary and secondary school level, which explicitly, quite explicitly, uh, was created in part to make compliant children into compliant workers. Yeah. And you know, children are not inherently compliant. Children yeah. are inherently creative and chaotic and discovering and exploring, and they don't inherently sit in neat rows and raise their hand when they need to go pee. You know, this is not what children do. They have to be trained into this. And that's about being indoctrinated, not being educated. So yeah. the modern educational system is precisely about creating compliant adults who do respond to authoritarian measures with more compliance. So, yeah. you know, we need we need schools that allow for and not just allow for, but encourage um, creation and discovery and messiness and serendipity and exploration. And, you know, there this can be done with some simple measures too. you know, gardens field trips, spending time outside in all kinds of weather and letting children get a little bit wet, get a little bit cold, get a little uncomfortable. So they learn how to actually solve their own physical problems from whence they can then begin to solve their own psychological problems from whence they can begin to solve their own intellectual problems. You know, there are a number of pretty simple solutions, but that requires that the people who are in the business of educating children want solutions. Yeah. And it's not clear that most of the systems involved actually do. Yeah, there's no getting around the the massive defect of the faculty. No. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I wanted to become a teacher so that I could try and make a difference, try and make a dent. But I felt like I was like this small little cog in a massive wheel that was already churning well before I even decided to, to enter <laughs> or try and enter. And I realized that, Yes, the education system ultimately needs to change because we are steering these kids towards a 
totalitarianism, if I can use that society where they just bend over backwards to the will of the master and they don't have choice. They don't have freedom to ask questions. They don't have freedom to be curious, which I think takes them away ultimately from being human. I think the ability for us to be human is to share stories without the fear of being canceled in our society, regardless whether or not it's on social media or even in our friendship circles without them feeling like we need, we need to be judged for having this kind of opinion. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I decided to start this as well is that we're all human beings. We all have stories to share. Why uh, pin someone against someone else's story? What good does that do? It does no good whatsoever. So I, I just am grateful for you both and your story and the ability for you guys to share this wisdom with the world. And hopefully someone listens. <laughs> I'm listening, <laughs> but yeah. Wonderful. Yes, that would be fantastic. We hope many people listen. And, uh, you know, the book is a, an invitation to what we call a campfire, an allusion to thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of campfires that have happened in human history where we have put our heads together and figured out how to get out of a jam. Yeah. I am mindful of your time, by the way. I do want to ask you a couple more questions, if that's okay. I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. So you have this new book that is out. It hit the New York Times bestseller list, which is honestly amazing. And I had, didn't think that it wouldn't, but <laughs> I, I kind of knew that it would. But it's called A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. What do you hope for people to get out of this book the most? Well, we were we were talking yesterday. Uh, I think Heather and I have been playing with this particular title for a very long time, and we quite like it. But there's also a possibility that the book should have been called Hypernovelty. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because hypernovelty is an existential threat. And it needs to be on people's mind that that's why we are physically, socially, uh, politically unhealthy is that yeah. we have encountered a situation for which we are not constructed and we are not taking the proper steps to fix that problem. Um, I think we hope people will recognize it for what it is and see it as an opportunity to fix what's wrong and discover a better way of living in which the world becomes natural to us again. We are not in conflict with it uh, every minute of the day and we can um, put our minds to the thing for which they are well adapted, right? Mm -hmm. We are, we are unique creatures that have the capacity to engage meaning with consciousness and to have our conscious mind preoccupied with nonsense all day is a terrible shame. It's, it's a terrific waste. It would be great to get beyond it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess I would just add, we hope, um, by, by providing many, many examples of how we have applied an evolutionary toolkit to our own understanding of the world and how we did it in classrooms as well with our own undergraduates and with our own children um, to help readers learn how to do that themselves. So this is the sort of, you know, don't, don't give a man a fish, teach him to fish mm -hmm. lesson, right? And there, you know, there are many particular examples in the book uh, that we can point to with regard to um, yeah, actually, this thing that many moderns are doing isn't healthy, and you would be better off if, for instance, you took all the blue lights out of your bedroom, right? Like, don't, don't, don't let LED lights shine in your eyes, whether or not they're closed when you're trying to sleep, because that's going to mess with your circadian cycles. That's a very particular example. But the conclusion 
we, you know, we, we walk you there in the book um, through the evolutionary logic of why is it that you should expect that blue spectrum light at night might mess with your sleep cycles? And also what is sleep for anyway? So we get you there sort of over and over and over again with example after example, so that people hopefully, this is, you know, this is one of my hopes for the book, that people can start incorporating this kind of logic into their own lives, into their own choices, and begin to recognize when, when the new thing, when the modern thing that is on offer because it's the 21st century and we are extraordinary at producing new things is actually terrific yeah. and we should embrace it. And when the new thing is something that you should be hesitant about and say, well, I'm actually going to hold off and I'm going to protect myself from that thing until I can think through or I can see evidence uh, from data coming in for a little while longer about whether or not it's actually going to be as safe and, uh, and pro productive as I'm being told it is. Yeah, sleep is another big topic that I could have dived into, <laughs> but maybe for another time. But what would you say as you're writing this book together, what would you say was the most challenging part of writing it? Um, I was the most challenging part of writing this book. <laughs> Heather and I both know that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, All right. I don't think I can answer the yeah. question. <laughs> See, told you. Um, yeah, I, I think... I, the hard part is the the book is really a version of what we taught to undergraduates yeah. and the and not that the, it was ever a curriculum right like we didn't give this curriculum it's exactly. the toolkit all the pieces yeah, right. yeah. the yeah. toolkit that we taught students with but the problem is that the mechanism for teaching students the toolkit involved feedback right? You would go into the classroom with some intent about what you were going to teach about, but then you would find out what was being heard by somebody on the other side. And then you could do this dynamically and a book doesn't work that way. I think um, that was a, that was an obstacle, maybe second to the obstacle created by me. <laughs> I, mean, I think, I think just to take it away from this, this particular writing process, but um, I think it will always be I was surprised to find myself as in love with educating as I was for 15 years in the classroom, uh, because I always felt that writing uh, would be the way that I wanted to communicate with the world. And I now find, since you know we are now also doing a podcast, um, you know, regularly to a lot of people, that the thing that I miss, you know, people say, ah, oh, you know, you've you, your classroom, you've taken it much more, much more global, and you know that is true, and it's not. Right. There isn't there exactly isn't the opportunity for the iterative stuff, whereas, you know, this conversation with you, we can do a little bit of that. And of course, there's also not that opportunity in a book. So we had to create a static document that we hope is living enough that it can keep up with exactly the rate of change that we are decrying in the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy of this book. Now you do have this amazing podcast called Dark Horse, which people can go and check out for themselves. There's a lot of good content on there. I've loved listening to some of your conversations there too. Uh, but I do have to ask you this question that I love asking all podcasters. If you were to ask a question to anyone alive or dead, who would it be? Why? And what question would you want to ask them? Mm. I'm never good at these sorts of questions. This is a tough one. <laughs> I'm going to ask a question to any person alive or dead. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm never good at these questions. This is a stumper. I have. To say. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, there's lot. I mean, there's lots of ways to dispense with the question. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I like I, I, I mean, like I can I can dispense. Be like, I want I want to know. I want to get Darwin talking about yeah. what he views as the 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 aha moment if he feels like he had a eureka moment or if it came to him gradually. You know, because we have stories from history about what what happened with Darwin on the Beagle, et cetera. But I want to know from his from his telling. But that's you know that's too easy at some level. Right. Mm. Um, I think I might go a different tack and I might, I might want to talk to Sergey Brin and Larry page mm. and ask them, okay, don't be evil. But if it <laughs> starts going that direction and it's not under your control, do you have a plan B? Yeah. Mm. That's good. That's a good one. Well done. I know that was a difficult question, but you answered it very well. Well done. <laughs> I love asking that question to podcasters because I feel like you guys, you ask questions a lot. And if you were to have a sit down conversation with someone, who would you want? Um, yeah. Well done. <laughs> uh, my right. final, final question for you both. This is my all time favorite question. I love asking everyone at the end. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you both to imagine that you're being able to reach the age of 100. Now, this is an individual film for you both. Now, it's not together, but just imagine with me that your friends and your family had decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic for sake of argument. I know it's a crazy question. Stay with me. But they've been able to get all of that and put it together in a film. What would you want that film to say and to show about your life? You want a little moment to think? Yeah, you go, you go yeah. first. I mean, I, yeah. I've got something in my head. But, um, yeah. I think uh, I would want it to reveal. I used to talk to my students about productive goofing off, right? Students this surprises me still, but students often have the idea that work is good. And I try to compel them. No, work is not good. Work is a necessary evil, yeah. right? You need to be able to do work. But if two people produce the same thing and one worked a quarter as much, that's better, right? You should, you should aim to be that person. Mm. Um, and the other way of looking at this is that it should always be difficult for you to detect whether or not you're working, right? Uh, a life well-lived is one in which what you do is worth doing, not because you earn something for it that you can go spend elsewhere, but because it's actually valuable. Yeah. And this, you know, creates a problem. It means to the extent you may need to rein in your work life in order to accomplish other things. You may not know where to draw the boundary, but in general, it's a good thing if there's enough meaning in what you do, that work and life are, you know, the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you if you looked at the hundred years of my life, if I reach that point, uh, you'll see a lot of productivity that was not the result of sitting down to be productive. And I don't I don't think that's so bad. I think it's a good thing. I think so too. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that actually not too surprisingly is uh, coincident without being at all the same as what I was thinking, which I think is a, is a good match for the two of us as well. Um, I was, uh, three words came to mind. Uh, I, 
I used some words with you earlier about how people find meaning. And I think the the three that always come up for me first are the ones that are most important to me and their creativity and discovery and exploration. And so I was thinking about exploration in particular and exploration of space and of ideas and also of um, sort of wanting, wanting to have kept until my hundredth birthday and to, I think also be known uh, for a fearlessness uh, in intellectual space, but also physical space. And then that, that prompted me to think of actually being a hundred feet up in a tropical tree, uh, with two students, uh, on a study abroad trip that I was leading my very first study abroad trip in Panama. And I was also there with a man in his seventies who had been a print journalist and who had, after he retired, become a spelunker and a tree climber, taught himself to do these things. He, he never did them at the same time. He did ne- He never did spelunking and tree climbing <laughs> at the same time. But Joe Mayer, who was Thank up goodness. there with us, my students, Crystal and Dan, um, he asked us something like the question that you just asked us, but it wasn't exactly the same. He said, what would you want on your tombstone? basically. Uh, And uh, so to add to exploration and fearlessness, um, I would say, you know, in this moment, up 100 feet up a tree with uh, two of these wonderful students of mine and this this man, what I said to them was, it's not clear that everyone around me knows, but I am deeply loyal. uh, And uh, I will, I will not betray those uh, who are, are worthy of my loyalty. And I think that is, uh, something that is too often missing in modernity. Yeah. Those two answers were beautiful and perfect. Brett and Heather, thank you so much for your time today for writing this book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. And thank you both so much for standing up for the truth and what you believe in as well. And for joining me today on this this amazing conversation for myself on the Storybox podcast. Thank you both so much. Thanks. It was a pleasure. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.